Good evening. I'm Pastor Brooks, lead pastor at Grace Community Church. I, uh, my wife and I, Stacy, we attend here, here in the downtown location regularly. Um, but my day job is preaching on Sunday mornings in the North Liberty campus. So it's good to have an opportunity to speak to all of you, my uh, church family downtown. So we finished up a series not too long ago, right before Christmas break, on First Peter, and. One of, the, uh, one of the verses that we, we focused on when we were in that series was 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Let me read it for you. Peter says, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you, me, us, we are individual living stones that are being built into, shaped, molded, crafted, put together for God's purpose and for God's glory. Now, how many of you made New Year's resolutions that you planned to break within the end of the week? Any of you? Okay, probably most of you made some New Year's resolutions. You probably don't plan to break them, but you probably will eventually. And What that illustrates is that we are perpetually building something. We are always building. We are always crafting. We are always planning. We are always looking ahead to a preferred future that isn't our future or isn't our present. We we want something different for ourselves. So you come to the University of Iowa. You you go to grad school. You 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 meet that special someone. You plan to have a family. You plan to raise these children. You plan to get this job. We're always planning. We're always building. We're always changing. We're always growing. And the question is, as we as we consider this this building, this this construction, this planning, is Life's big questions, that, that determines what we build and how we big, build. So here, here's, the, here's the questions. Before we get into this new series, which we're introducing tonight, which is called Living Stones, which is not a rehash of First Peter. But before we get there, I want to I throw out a couple of life's big questions that certainly you've probably considered. First of all, the first question is, who, who am I? It's an identity question. It, what makes you you? When you, when you? How do you answer that question for yourself? Who am I? Who are you? When you look in the mirror and you say, who am I? How do you answer that question? A related question to, to who am I is, what's my purpose in life? What am I here for? What am I here for? That's a, a purpose question. Another question is, where am, I, where am I going in life? Where am I going? What plans am I making? What's my destination? Where am I heading? This is a much younger, younger audience than, than the church in North Liberty. And you guys have most of your life in front of you. I have, it's actually sickening to think about, but I have most of my life behind me. I still have some in front, but most of you have most of your life in front of you. So where's your destination? And, and, and the last question is, how do you plan to get there? How do you plan to get there? These are all questions that you are all wrestling with currently or you have wrestled with or you will wrestle with. You're going to deal with these questions. Now, how do you come to the answer to each of those questions? If you, if you speak to your colleagues in the workforce or your peers at the university 
or you talk with just cultural in general in, in Western civilization, the, the, the most common way to get the answers to those questions is to, is to turn inward. If, if we're looking at Peter's illustration where he says that we are living stones that are being built into. So if we're looking at a, a question of building, the most common way individuals ter- is, is to examine the bricks. It's, it's a man is the measure of all thing kind of approach to life. So it's a turn inward. It's psychology is the study of the behavior of people. Or if we're running with Peter's metaphor, it's the study of the stones. How do the stones act? If we're going to figure out where the stones are going, what the stones are going to do and what their purpose is, we'll look at the stones. What do the stones do? How do they act? How do they behave? What's the motivation of the stones? So it's a look inward into the stone's life or the person's life. Sociology is the study of stones interacting with one another, the structures that they form and how they do them and how they interact. And so we look at, we look at societies. We look at, that's what anthropology is. It's the study of man or the study of stones. So what, what secular society does, what the culture we do, live in does, is studies the stones to determine what the purpose of the stones are and where the stones should be headed and what kind of building the stones should build. So that's one way to look at it. Probably the most common way. And when you look at the lives of individuals in our culture and, and how are they determining their identity and their meaning and their purpose, most always you see a common theme is that people are turning inward to find out who they should be. And there's another way to do this. You could actually start with a builder. You could start with the builder. And see, a life of faith, a life of following Christ, is an active process. God's part, he's the builder. God's part is the builder. And his part is to initiate and to invite and then to build, to shape, to mold, to fashion. That's, that's his work. He's the master builder. Our part as living stones is to respond. To respond to his initiative. To respond to his invitation. To respond to his pressure, his molding, his shaping. And that response takes one of two forms... The first is faith or synonymously trust. We trust him. We yield. We yield to his shaping process. That's faith. Just as common, the other response is unbelief. We look at his design for our lives on a macro level or a micro level, an individual decision in the moment. And and we have one or two options. We can either go with it. We can yield and let him shape us. Or we can see that plan for our lives, micro or macro, and we think, hmm, my plan's better. I don't see that his plan has my best interest at heart. I don't see how his plan is going to lead to my personal fulfillment or happiness. And at that moment, at that moment, we exercise unbelief, unbelief. See, our problem is that our history as human beings, and oftentimes our history as individuals, demonstrate we are not very good at trusting. We are not very good at trusting. So we're starting a new series called Living Stones. And what we are going to do is we are going to survey 
we are going to survey the work of the master builder in the book of Genesis through Exodus. We're going to survey the work of the master builder in order that we may learn how to trust him, the master builder. Now, disclaimer, this is not a series where we are going to look at Abraham and say, be like Abe or be like Noah or heavens don't be like Jacob. Because if you've read, if you've read Genesis, if you've read Exodus, there are moments or displays of great faith, but just as often there are moments of displays of tragic unbelief and rebellion. No, the hero in this story is not the stones. The hero in this story is the builder. And the goal here is to see how he works with incredibly dysfunctional people who lack faith, who we relate to because they're so relatable and sometimes so awful. And as we see what he does with them and what he is doing in them and even in us, it will inspire us to trust the builder. That's the goal of this whole series. That's the goal of this whole series. Now, tonight is the introduction. It's kicking it off. And appropriately, we are going to begin in the beginning. We are going to begin in the beginning. Not with the first stone. Well, technically, we are going to get to Adam and Eve. But we're really going to focus on the designer. There's three things we're going to look at tonight. First of all, we're going to be in Genesis 1 for most of the time. We're going to look at the designer. We have to start with the designer. You never ask a brick what the plan for the building is. You, you ask the architect what the plan for the building is. So we're going to start with the designer. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the design. What did the master builder design? And we're not looking at creation as a whole, but, but man specifically, mankind, men and women. And then the last thing we're going to be faced with is a decision. That's a personal thing that each of you, each of us will have to wrestle with. So please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And as you do there, please pray for me and with me. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, that you are the master builder, that we are living stones. Thank you that you never give up on us. You're constantly shaping. You're constantly fashioning. And we pray that you would use your word tonight to shape us, to mold us. And for some, maybe to even awaken belief and saving faith in you. Lord, accomplish your purpose through the preaching of the word. May Christ increase, may I decrease. May you be glorified in all that is said tonight through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first of all, the designer, Genesis chapter one, verse one. Let's take a look at a couple verses here. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, Elohim, that's the Greek word here, is eternal. God has existed from all time, exists presently, and will continue to exist for throughout all eternity. He does not have a beginning. 
creation, the heavens and the earth, has a starting point. Scientists used to believe about a hundred, actually, gosh, really, I'm really old. It's actually longer than a hundred years ago. When I first started preaching it, I could say a hundred years ago, but no, now it's more like 130, 140. They used to believe the universe had a steady state existence. What that means is they would look at all the complexity of life and everything and, and cosmology and they say, the way the things are to get to where they are, it has to, the universe has to have been around forever. So matter, time, space, and all that had, because over time and over chance, everything's randomly evolved to where it is today. And that was, that was the common belief until Einstein and, and other astrophysicists started looking at things and they determined that there was a singularity, that the universe began in a single moment. And before that moment, there was nothing. Now, the scientific community choked on that initially because they couldn't stand the idea of a finite beginning and before that, nothing. And then, you, why? Because it sounds way too much like Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, there was nothing except God was transcendent and then there was everything. Well, that's what we have here. The master builder is at work. So God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void. It, it was shapeless, it was formless, it was chaotic. And it says that, and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So this is our first introduction to the designer in his creative process. And then we have the rest of Genesis chapter one and the, and the six days. And we're not actually gonna cover that today. We're gonna actually leapfrog over the creation of the moon and the stars and the separation of the waters and the plants and the trees and the creeping things and the flying things and the swimming things and the livestock. And we are going to jump ahead to verse 26. So verse 26, then God said, then God said, let us make man, Adam, Adam. That's, that's a proper name, but it's also a generic name for human beings. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Who is he talking to? This is absolutely crucial for us to understand as we move forward. Who is the master builder addressing as he is ready to fashion man in his image? Let us make a man in our image. There's a number of different ways to look at this. Some commentators and, and certainly the Jewish faith looks at that as if God is speaking to the angels. Um, the word that's translated God in English is Elohim. Elohim is a generic term for spiritual beings. I'm not using this illustration to diminish the, uh, the majesty of who God is, but simply to help you understand the, 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 the term. So how many of you, uh, you call tissue paper Kleenex? Any of you do that? Why? because the most popular brand of tissue is Kleenex, yes? So in the South, 
they drink Pepsi, but they call it Coke. Coke is a brand. Soda is, is Elohim is, is a generic. Elohim is tissue. Yahweh is to, to tissue as, as, or Kleenex is, as God is to tissue. You get it? So Yahweh is one specific Elohim. That is the God of creation. That's who we see in Genesis 1 verse 1. So the Jewish faith would look at this and say, God is, is speaking to the angels because angels are a type of Elohim, the sons of God. So this could be translated a number of different ways and is throughout the Old Testament. The problem with that is that angels are never attributed to anything that has to do with creation. We're not made in the image of angels. We're not made, we are made in the image of Yahweh, the Elohim, God, the God, the very one and only God. So if it's not, if it's not gods, plural, or the sons of gods, or the heavenly host, if God's not speaking to Michael or Gabriel or all these other angels, who's he speaking to? You cannot prove this from the text, but when you read the New Testament, it becomes apparent that this is a conversation within the Godhead. That this is a correspondence between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, I wish I would have read this book about three weeks ago. I only started reading it about three days ago. I was talking with Rodney Gaiman. So many of you know Rodney. Rodney used to be the worship leader in, in the North Liberty campus. And then he planted a church in, in uh, Riverside, Iowa, River City Church. And we were just talking. He says, oh, you got to read this book. It's great. What is it? It's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. By Michael Reeves. Write it down. Highly recommend it. It's very short. It's not overly complex. It's very, very readable. It's a good, it reads more like a devotion than it does heavy, heavy theology. But I want, us, I want us to dive deep into understanding the designer because it's important to understand the designer because he's, we're made in his image. We're made in his image. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the word, Logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then if we jump forward to verse 14, John in his prologue says, And the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. We've seen it. Who's he speaking of? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word, the incarnate God made flesh. He was both with God and is, was God at the same time. You say, well, how can that be? I don't know. We're talking about the, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Yeah, it's difficult to grab, grasp our heads around, but this is, this is the testimony, the clear testimony of the New Testament. It's, a, it's the testimony of the apostles. It's the testimony of Christ. And then the verse that was read earlier that, that, uh, that Jason opened with, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul affirms the very thing, same thing the, the Apostle John does. Paul says this in Colossians 1, 15. He, being Christ, he's the image, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn, firstborn of all creation, for by him, that is Jesus, 
all things who are created in heaven on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What is Paul saying? What is John saying? They're both saying this, that Jesus Christ, the son of God, is eternal. And if something exists in this universe, you, me, your children, the, the physical stuff that makes us up, the atoms, the molecules, the neutrons, the protons, the quarks, all of those different subatomic particles, things unseen, things that are seen, things that are invisible, spiritual things that you cannot measure, with a, you can't see with a microscope, rulers, authorities, angels, fallen angels, if it exists, if it's a thing that you can define, Christ made it. Furthermore, he existed in eternity before he made it. That's the clear testimony of scripture. And then this one, this one just grabs me right by the throat or drop a few inches, right by the heart. John 17, verse 24. Jesus is praying just prior to his arrest, his high priestly prayer where he prays for the disciples that God would sanctify them by the truth, that God would protect them in this world. And then he says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The implications of that are are mind-blowing. Here's what what Jesus, what what this reveals. When God says, let us make man in our image, he made you and fashioned you and fashioned me in our mother's wombs that we would reflect and bear his image in his glory. And do you understand this? God in eternity past, before anything material existed, was in perpetual community where there was nothing but love from the Father to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, to the Father, to the Son. There was, it's a perpetual eternal love fest in community before anything was made. And you and I were created in his image. God, by his very nature, 1 John chapter 4, says that God is love. Do you realize that for God to be love, that is not simply something that God does. God does love for God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's an expression, a specific expression of love. But that's not what John is saying. When he says that God is love, it's true about his very nature. That means that, that, ha- that God is eternal and he's been loving and is loving in eternity past just as he is now and just as he will be in the eternity future. For love to be meaningful, there has to be an object of love. That means that God has to be triune. That the Father is loving the Son, the Son is loving the Father, the Holy Spirit is loving both of them. It's just love, 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 love. And God is self-giving. It is his nature to give. It is his nature to, 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 to express that love. 
I know that the Trinity is hard to grasp. It's hard to wrap your head around. And because it's mysterious, oftentimes we, we kind of back off of it because we don't see any practical value. And it, ah, I don't need to understand that. No, you don't need to understand it in the sense that you, you can totally rest, that you can explain it. But it's important to know the, the, the basis here because we're created in his image. Do you know why you crave community? Do you know why human beings in the holidays that don't have family get so lonely? Do you know why spouses that lose their spouses in the holidays, their hearts are just torn open? Because they're created in God's image and they crave community. And when one of them, when a spouse dies or a child dies, a piece of them dies. Why do you think that is? We're created in his image. We're created to be loved and we're created to express love. God has, did not become loving at creation. He is love and always has been. Now, let's look at the design. God made us, made man, God, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So there is God. So we looked at the designer. Now let's take a look at the design. Made in his image. Made in his image. Let's start with that word image. The word image here, it's a Hebrew word that can be translated image, idol, likeness, statue. The idea is a representation. So God wants to make mankind, male and female, he wants to make them his representatives, his likeness on earth. On earth. In ancient times, kings would have the same word. There would be images. You, you remember Nebuchadnezzar made his golden image? of himself, it's a representation of himself that, that, they, that the Babylonians and every, all the lands were supposed to worship. They were supposed to see that image and they were supposed to be reminded that Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler. This was a common thing. Kings would do this. They'd place statues in every city and the citizens in those cities would say, oh yeah, that's the king, he's in charge. So the image of these kings would be placed all over to remind the citizens who is the sovereign ruler. And this was... It's, it's actually true today. If, how many of you have been to the post office? You've been to a courthouse. Whose picture's on the wall? The president of the United States and the governor. It's the same principle. Now, we're not supposed to worship them, but it reminds us who the current ruler of our uh, democratic republic is. That's, that's the idea. Now, in ancient times, it was common for these kings, these kings, to be, to be declared to be divinity in the sense that they were the sons of God. For Pharaoh, Pharaoh was considered in Egypt to be divine. And so he was God's special uh, representative for the Egyptian people, for the world. There's the representation of God. So that was common. Kings were supposedly the sons of God. Divinity in human form, the image, the likeness of, of the gods. But that's not what the Hebrew God says. He's not saying there's one particular ruler, a male patriarch figure that rules over society that's the image. He says, no, 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 all of you, all of you, regardless of your status, regardless of your education, regardless of your gender, regardless of your age, 
You, if you have a pulse and you are a human being, you have been stamped and made in the image of God. And you are to reflect his beauty and his glory in the universe. Think of it this way. So if God is light, he wants billions of little mirrors that can reflect his manifold glory and beauty all over the universe. The Babylonian creation story goes something like this. Marduk, the god, he creates human beings so that they can be the slaves and serve the other gods. That's the purpose of man in the Babylonian creation story. The Hebrew god says, no, I'm going to create mankind in my image because my image is to bless, my nature is to bless, my nature is to love, and I want my manifold blessing to be expanded all over the universe. And I want to create a billion little mirrors that are going to reflect and and manifold beauty, all of my glory, for their good and my glory. Do you see how different that is? And I want to use the least of them to shine the brightest, not just the one king. I want to use all of them. That's the designer. And that's who we are and who we are designed to be. What does it mean for man to bear the image of God? So when we look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where where John keeps using this word, word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word became flesh, that that word, it's logos, it, it's, it's the idea, it's the, the principle, it's the logic, it's the blueprint. He's the blueprint. He's the, he's the master designer, but it's more than that. He's the blueprint. He's the blueprint. So if you look at Romans, Romans chapter 8, 28, Paul says, and we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Catch this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Not only is Jesus the architect with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's the blueprint that we are being conformed and fashioned in his likeness. As Christ is, so we will be. Not in divinity, but in character, in purpose, in glory. That's that's what we're being fashioned to be. That's what the master builder is doing. Now, what does an image bearer actually do? Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's take a look at some of the things that that God says here. In verse 28, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them. That word bless, it means to to seek their well-being. He did everything possible to to bestow goodness and blessing and and just favor upon them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, 
I think the be fruitful and multiply is easy enough to understand. You have two individuals, Adam and Eve. We'll see this more in Genesis chapter two. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, I got two little mirrors here that are designed to reflect my light into the universe. How about you make about a billion more little mirrors and just spread out my, my light and the reflection of my majesty all over creation. So be fruitful, multiply. Check, got it. Makes total intellectual sense. Now look at the next the command. That's not so easy to understand, or at least in our present context. Let's take a look at the language. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, okay, and subdue it. How many of you have ever been subdued? Anyone been subdued? I used to wrestle, I've been subdued. It's a violent process. Against your will, someone makes you do what you don't want to do. It means to seize, it means to conquer, it means to control. That sounds violent. Oh, but the next word's better, have dominion. How many of you find that to be, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. That, yeah, it doesn't sound right, why? Why? Why doesn't that sound right? It's okay. We're, we've now gone from monologue mode to interaction mode. What, what, what sounds distrustworthy about that? Who he's talking to? Human beings. Stacy and I, were, we were 20 miles from the Canadian border last week. Some of you are like, why? Because it's not cold enough here. So we went there. And we were talking with a local in Ely, Minnesota, who happens to be a wildlife biologist. That's where he uh, did his educate, got his education in. And now he's a fishing guide. He is, uh, takes people on dog sledding trips. He's an outfitter. He takes people on hunting trips. He's just, he's in the outdoors all the time. And he grew up in Northern Minnesota. And he's given us a little bit of history of, of the area. And he said that in Northern Minnesota, um, caribou used to roam freely in Northern Minnesota because their habitat is the old pine forest where you'd have these, these huge, huge pine trees, huge pine trees, hundreds and hundreds of years old. Well, in, in about 1890 to 1920, loggers came in and clear cut everything. There's no old growth in Northern Minnesota now. There's lots of pine trees, but there's no old growth. And so there's no caribou. Does this surprise anyone? No. Why not? That's what men do. We look at this as human beings and we think manifest destiny. I, as a man, or you as a woman, us as human beings, we've been given dominion and we're supposed to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So what does that mean? Clear cut, strip mine, and drive the native population out. Subdue, dominion. What's the problem with that view? That's not in the image of God. See, here's the problem with that. Dominion minus love is exploitation. We don't trust that because we know human history. Here's what we're doing. What chapter are we in in Genesis? It's not a trick question. We're in Genesis 1. You don't see sin enter the world until Genesis 3. So 
every inclination of the heart of man at this point is to reflect and bear the image of the creator, which is to seek the well-being of others. What this commandment means in the context is, Adam, Eve, I've put you in a garden. I want you to go in there and I want you to subdue that garden. I want you to subdue that place and I want you to make that place so fruitful that it will feed not just you and not just your immediate family that's going to come soon, but it will feed millions and billions of other little mirrors that are going to reflect my glory all over the universe. I want you to take this universe that I've put you in and I want you to make it fruitful so people can eat, so people can worship, so people can see my glory. And, and that's true of every vocation. Every single vocation is to take the raw material of the stuff they're given and to make it beautiful. Bo sits here and what does he do? Bo takes the raw material of sound and he does things that I can't do with sound. Why? Because it causes you to focus on the worthiness of your creator. What do I do? I take words and I fashion them through my mouth and I point to my creator. What do farmers do? How many of you have heard Paul Harvey's uh, God Made a Farmer? Anybody heard that? It is absolutely beautiful. If you've never heard it, Google it. What do farmers do? They till the earth and they feed humanity. What do bankers do? They take the raw material of, of, of commerce and they, they make it multiply. Now, apart from sin, apart from sin, that is all beautiful. Yes? But the moment human beings make the decision to not reflect the glory of God, but to seek to build their own kingdoms, it becomes exploitation. So of course you don't trust that scripture because you're reading it through the lens of thousands of years of human history in which people have not desired to represent the creator that made them in his image. So I get it, but read it in its context. We haven't got to Genesis 3 yet. That's next week. So we close with a decision. And the decision is, will we entrust our lives? Will you entrust your life to the master builder? Jump ahead to the second chapter. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Actually, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of garden, and the tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil. And if you jump down to verse 15, God says, that you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you surely will die. See, every single Adam and Eve had, had, had there were two trees and they had one choice. Are, are, you, are you going to accept the master's builder's design for your life? Or are you going to set out on your own? Are you going to take from the tree the knowledge of good and evil and are you going to determine a course? Are you going to become the architect? 
you're going to take that tree and you're going to become wise enough to build your own life? That's why subduing and having dominion equals exploitation is because that's exactly what the human race has done. And, And our parents made that decision for us. And every day that I wake up, I am by nature and choice a sinner. I've by nature and choice someone who has the urge to usurp the role of the master builder and build my own life and my own plan for my own glory and for my own good. That, that's just what we do. And the choice is still before us. See, it's, it's ruined now. But we, the master builder didn't give up. The master builder didn't just kick us to the side and say, you blew it, you're out of the garden That's all next week. I'm kind of getting ahead, but I have to go there because you know that's where we're at. We're not in the garden. We're east of Eden. We're exiles, as Peter calls us. We're wanderers. But the master builder does not simply throw out the bricks and start over. He redeems them. In Hebrews chapter 1, The introduction of that epistle says long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is both creator and he is redeemer. He's both. He is both the designer and the redeemer. He's both. He's both. And the the choice that you and I have tonight and every day thereafter is who am I going to trust with life's big question? Let me ask you this. We'll close with this. What gives your life worth? How many of you from time to time feel worthless? Any of you? You feel like you don't measure up. You feel like your life doesn't have any meaning. So you figure out, if I could could just please more people, if I could just succeed in in my MBA, if I could just win this award, if I could just prove to myself that I'm actually something, if I could prove to everybody else that I'm worthwhile, then I'll feel that I've built something. Do you feel that way? So over a year ago, when I hurt my back, I couldn't do what I do. I couldn't do anything for myself. And there was one particular moment. It was really, really dark, not, not light-wise. It was just dark. My soul was dark. I couldn't preach. I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. I won't tell you the other things I couldn't do because it's kind of gross. There was just a lot I couldn't do. And I started to sob uncontrollably. Some of you are like, well, there's a big surprise. I started to sob and I said these words. I don't have any dignity. And then I stopped and I realized the implications of what I had said. What I revealed to myself 
was that I derived my dignity by being useful to other people. And if I couldn't be useful to other people, I didn't have any worth. Now you, you tell me, was I fundamentally any less of a creation of God and an image of God on my back than when I was standing? What changed? Nothing. I was just as much a child of God made to reflect his image and glory on my back as when I was preaching the week before I got hurt. Some of you don't think you have any worth because you haven't accomplished anything or you feel less than other people. Understand that you bear the image of your creator who in eternity past loved you with a love so strong that he was willing to become us to redeem you. And you are worth dying for. For his glory and your good, whether you think you're worth spit or not, God thinks you are worth because he chose you before the foundation of the world to be the recipient of his love and the reflector of his glory. Whether you succeed or fail in life, if you are in Christ, you are his beloved and you reflect and bear his image. And that's the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your great love. That it didn't begin when you saw how well we did. It began in eternity past. Actually, technically, it never began. It's always been. But it was expressed when you became one of us. And it was manifest when your body was broken and your blood was spilled. And it was displayed in that while we were yet sinners, you became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God, would you give us the good sense to trust you with the big decisions of life and the little decisions because you have entrusted yourself to your Father. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name for his glory and for our good. Amen.